Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. This episode, we'll be talking the rebirth of St. Louis, uh, the Liverpool romp, skiing, Carly Lloyd, gunners gunning, question from an eight-year-old, and so much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how you doing on this Monday, March 6th in the year 2023? I am doing very well. A question from an eight-year-old. I'm looking forward to that. Yes. You know, we finally have someone who knows what they're talking about and you know, it's up to our level. Um, any, do anything interesting over the weekend? Well, having seen all the Oscar Best Picture nominees, I felt liberated to go to the theater and just watch a fun movie just for the heck of it. So I did go to see Creed Three. Oh, and how was it? I enjoyed it. Yeah? Yeah. Um, but, but not oscar worthy or anything like that no, but no. in the have you seen the creed franchise yes and, uh, and they're talking about making a fourth one oh my pretty soon the creeds are going to outnumber the rockies right oh my goodness all right uh, but it's good but it's, it doesn't rival the rockies does it but well, i was gonna ask you what is your favorite rocky movie no that's an eternal debate um which one is the one with uh mr t rocky three clubber okay, so that's the first one that i came into the franchise with um, and then I went back and watched the other ones. And I, I think it's probably going to be three, but but one, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's it's great. What's interesting is the first couple were Oscar-nominated films, considered pretty artsy-fartsy, and then the franchise took a more commercial turn. And by the time we got to Rocky Four with Ivan Drago, which is Sean Sullivan's favorite, by the way, that was just purely commercial fair. Well, okay. So is um is Maverick, Top Gun Maverick nominated for anything this year? Yes. You know? okay. Best picture. Yeah. So had that Rocky three where it got more glitz, glamour America bigger uh happened in twenty twenty three, given where we are as a country, I think it maybe would have resonated more in that. I think people saw it as selling out back then as opposed to nowadays where something like Maverick comes out and we're just so desperate for it that it's going to get its uh, get its due. One last point on Creed. It was great to see Wallace and Avon on screen together again. Uh, those are actors or those are characters? Well, Michael B. Jordan and Wood Harris uh, both star in this film, and obviously they both starred Got in it. my favorite TV show of all time. Got Water. it. Got it. All right. Um, let's see. What did uh, what did I watch? I watched um, Play Misty for me. I, you know, I'm back on, on this whole uh, 70s kick where I'm just watching all of these different movies. This was a uh, movie that came out, I think it's in 1971, you know, a, a psych thriller, and it was uh, Clint Eastwood's first directorial 
endeavor after starring in many, many movies. And uh, my wife would always like at times uh, t uh, say, hey, play Misty for me. I had no idea what the hell she was talking about, but it was based on this movie. I probably should have delved into this earlier because it's about this, this psycho uh, woman who starts to stalk Clint Eastwood's character who plays a radio DJ and it just devolves into uh, a whole crazy thriller, almost slasher-esque type of thing. But it's interesting since we know what he has become relative to not just acting, but uh, directing to see his first for foray as, a, uh, as an actor. I did that. And as I mentioned last episode, I spent the weekend uh, skiing. It's one week from today, Mossy. I will be getting my... Uh, partial knee uh, surgery, uh, replacement surgery, as we've, uh, as we've talked about. So this was my last uh, uh, go at a, uh, at a physical exertion uh, to the level of uh, skiing. And my knee held up well. Uh, I have never skied before, Mossy. Uh, however, this was uh, just a wonderful, wonderful event. Uh, it was the uh, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation's uh, annual American Airlines Celebrity Ski. This was obviously 2023. They've been doing it for 38 years. It's an amazing event, um, and I was incredibly privileged uh, and fortunate to be invited to it. This is my first time. Went with uh, Rob Stone, who's been there a number of times. All sorts of, of, of stars and celebrities out there, including Urban Meyer and our friend Carly Lloyd. We're on tour now with Carly Lloyd because we saw her in Paris, and now we saw her out here in, uh, in Colorado. Uh, Nancy Lieberman, the great uh, basketball player. Uh, and it's just an incredible uh, event for a worthwhile cause. And um, what it was amazing to see is how far they have come in uh, in the treatment of cystic fibrosis and what was once a you know almost a death sentence and uh, survivability of a couple of years and sometimes into your teens if you were lucky as now you you know I'm looking at people in their 40s and 50s and even people looking uh, to uh, into retirement because of the advancements in uh, in medication and the dramatic advancements in medication for this uh, for this disease so that was a uh, fun thing when it comes to skiing mossy um, while I don't ski and I am not a skier I went out and the great Phil Mayer, I don't know if you've heard of him, one of our American champions from the past, actually took me out on the mountain all alone and gave me a ski lesson. So if you're going to start skiing uh, with one of America's greatest, that is the way to go. He then promptly put me out onto the Slotham race course that they have set up for this event and just said, go, you'll figure it out. I, I figured it out. I, I made it down the hill. Uh, and continued on, went on skiing. I did even did some black, whatever they call them, diamonds or stuff like that. So um, I, I lived large when it came to skiing, and I used my hockey background to fi to figure it out. But it was it was fun. The um, the snow was cool, and it was all for a, a good cause. So I am back. I am a little bit. I don't get tanned, but I'm a little sunburned, and I'm ready to finish up this week strong before I head uh, under the knife and become a metal god next week. Excellent. Shall we uh, light this candle, my friend? Let's do it. All right. All sorts of stuff going on, but let's start with, I think, is a is a big story and a story worth telling relative to not just what happened on the field, but what happened off the field in St. Louis. Does that sound good? Yep. All right. What was the score, Mossy? St. Louis in their first ever home match, a 3-1 victory over Charlotte. They actually conceded first, Enzo Copetti, and then equalized thanks to a Bill Tuiloma own goal. Then Leuven from the penalty spot made it 2-1 right before halftime. And my boy Joan Klaus with the clincher. So 3-1 final. Two wins out of two. Just the fourth expansion team in MLS history to win their opening two games. 
As you mentioned, the crowd was electric. You were there in the offseason. You could sense the excitement. We spoke to Taylor Tolman about a couple of weeks ago, and we all got to witness it this weekend. This was, this was wonderful. This was wonderful not only for St. Louis and for Major League Soccer, but for soccer and, and I, I would say for sports. This was a wonderful moment, what it, but hopefully this is going to be part of many moments going forward for this city. As you mentioned, um, fourth ever MLS team to open up 2-0. They've won both of their games after uh, their first week win in Austin. And uh, if you do that, if you win your first two games, around 80% of the teams continue on and make the playoffs. I'm not yet ready to say that St. Louis is a playoff team, but obviously this is an incredible start. Just for some historic purposes, the fire in 1998 went on and won the double. Uh, the Sounders uh, finished third in the West in 2009, LAFC third in the West in 2018, and Austin finished eighth in 2021 in the West. So this is as good as it could possibly get for a start. Relative to the actual moment and the game. Just an incredible scene for this city. Now, this is not a new soccer city, Mossy. Even previous to my generation, but including my generation, we have always looked to St. Louis. It has a long uh, tradition when it comes to players and an association with the game, dating back decades and decades and decades. And especially when you go back to look at our national team, having been populated in the past by players predominantly from the city of St. Louis and St. Louis has continued on uh, producing incredible men's and women's players, uh, whether it's a, you know, a Becky Sobrin or a Taylor Twelman, and the list goes on and on and on. And it was for a period, the Mecca of soccer. And things changed a little bit. And to see it kind of, you know, reemerge and reestablish itself in this way, it warmed the cockles of my uh, redheaded American heart, my friend. It was a wonderful scene, like we said. They brought it. And it should be said that, again, this is an urban environment. This is a city in downtown St. Louis. And St. Louis, like a number of cities uh, out there, have had problems over the years and continue to have problems. And part of the ambition and part of the desire is to create a safe and accommodating and fun and entertaining environment for people to come downtown to these cities. That's what they were ultimately made for, to people to experience these cities. And for a lot of these cities, they have gone through uh, incredible problems, and that has not been something that people have wanted to do. But they came out by the thousands to celebrate not just this, this team and this sport, but in a way it looked like, and again from afar, it looked like that the people of St. Louis were celebrating what this city is above and beyond being a soccer city and using soccer. And we always talk about looking through the lens and they are using soccer to not just look through the lens, but I think to magnify and to project out what St. Louis wants to be and what it can be. And on this night, it was incredible around the field. But we talked last uh, episode, Mossy. I, I get angst. I, I was nervous for moments like this because you only get one chance to make a first impression. And if this is <laughs> the first impression, then there are good things to come. And there will be ups and downs. But everybody left that stadium thinking, this is something special. This is something that I can hold on to. This is something that I can be proud of, not just as a team, but as a city. And that's Mwah. That is that is what you want. And so they encapsulated all of that. And 
you know, the soccer gods smiled upon them on the field. If you look at it purely from a soccer perspective, they were gifted multiple times in the game, the goals that they scored. But you know what? You have to have a little bit of uh, luck. It's not always going to be there. They beat a Charlotte team that is not a great Charlotte team. However, they found the way to get the uh, get the result, send the uh, home crowd home happy. And again, use that opportunity and use that platform that is the opening game in history to announce their presence to the world, to the country, and to St. Louis. Yeah, I was going to say, they've been aided so far this season by this bizarre penchant of opposing players to pass the ball directly to them right in front of goal. <laughs> Two games in a row this has happened. João Klaus capitalizing this time. I predict João Klaus will be the most popular St. Louis athlete since Ozzie Smith. <laughs> I, I predict he'll be the most popular uh, St. Louis athlete since Mike Lee, goal, goaltender for uh, the oh, St. Wow. Louis uh, St. Louis Blues. Yeah, I'm going back then. Um, okay, so on the field, uh, like we talked about, it, it wasn't great soccer, but they were handed these gifts uh, in the form of an own goal, in the form of a penalty kick, and then, like you mentioned, this back pass, this insane back pass that Klaus looked, and he kind of looked around to everybody and said, really, this is what's happening? But it did take a little bit of work for him to finish it, and he finished it beautifully and just kind of waiting and, and waiting his, uh, his shot ultimately there. I guess the question has to be, and we don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, and you know, the St. Louis faithful, it's what fans do is get ahead of ourselves. Is this what St. Louis is going to be from a consistent basis? Because they, you know, they're going to go through moments. Uh, they're not they're going they're not fighting on multiple fronts, so it's all going to be about Major League Soccer. But is does this portent for the uh, future of this St. Louis team? Because I don't I don't have them as I said before when we did our predictions. I said if they are even in the running for a playoff spot, I would consider that a uh, success. And that's what I expect for them to at least be in contention for a playoff spot. Maybe ultimately miss out. But I foresee a season. We've seen expansion teams in all shapes and sizes the last few years. Some have adopted the soft launch approach and been pretty bad early on. Others like LAFC and Atlanta came out guns blazing. And then there are some that have been in this sort of in-between. And I, that's where I see St. Louis. Uh, not unlike what Charlotte was last sure. season. So I foresee that type of campaign for them. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the soft launch part is, is relative to what's, what's on the field because this could not have gone any better. And this is anything but a soft launch when it comes to the actual, uh, the actual uh, you know, colors and spectacle. And they were singing and they were knowledgeable. And again, this shouldn't be a surprise to us because St. Louis knows and loves soccer. And so that they brought it and it looked and felt, and I, I wasn't there, but I'm assuming it smelled like a... a a soccer game and a professional soccer game that should not surprise uh, any of us but if you take a step back again look soccer in america and mls uh, in particular they take the you know they take the arrows and plenty of it is justified in terms of the criticism but this has to have been an incredibly proud day for, like I said, not just St. Louis, but for Major League Soccer as they continue to expand and they continue to find markets, even markets that have had soccer in the past, but taking it to a whole nother level. And again, you know, optics matter. And to see that, to see that play out with all of its color and its pageantry and you know, babies being held up and all of this stuff, it made me feel good because there is a generation that many, many years from now, when I'm no longer around Mossy and you know, you're, you're telling stories, there will be a generation 
and kids that will say, I remember that first game. I remember that feeling of being in that stadium. And that will impact them. And it will impact the way that they live their lives, obviously the sports that they play or that they are fans of. But it will also impact them being from St. Louis. And I guess, ultimately, even though I'm not from St. Louis and I'm looking at it from the outside, I could feel the pride in that moment. And we had Taylor Twelman on uh, last week. And if you haven't heard that, go back because it's still it's an evergreen type of uh, interview. But you could tell in that moment how proud he was but also how you know, a little bit nervous he was for what it was going to be because you never know until you open the gates and you blow that whistle. But this was everything and more than you would, would have wanted and to a certain extent that you would expect from a wonderful, historic, and traditional soccer town like St. Louis. Also in that Taylor Twelman interview, we discussed the contrasting fortunes of the two L.A. teams. They both kicked off their campaigns this past week. Remember, their opening weekend game against each other at the Rose Bowl was postponed. Uh, LAFC was in a party mood at Bank of California Stadium. They celebrated their MLS Cup triumph from last year, unveiled a banner, gave out rings, and then proceeded to defeat Portland 3-2 in a game that aired on Fox. They jumped out to a 3-0 lead. Chiellini, Carlos Vela from the penalty spot, and Opoku, and then goals from Evander and Paredes made it interesting, but LAFC held on at the end. Uh, let's do them first, then we'll get to the Galaxy. The champs uh, off and running this Yeah, season. they came off and running. I mean, yes, I think that LAFC faithful will be a little concerned that they kind of let them back in. But, you know, with all the pageantry, with all the, the pressure that LAFC has, they came out and they did not, they, they did not miss a beat. Um, and it was very comfortable for a long time. And even ultimately at the, at the end, letting Portland back into it, it's a good lesson to learn without actually having you know, the, uh, the problem of only coming out with, uh, w- with a point there. But I, I don't think that this game worried anybody that this is not still going to be an elite LAFC, uh, LAFC team going on. And they were, you know, they were better individually. They were better in set pieces. Um, and, you know, Portland still is a, a work in progress. And I do think Portland, which, by the way, plays against uh, St. Louis next week, so that's going to be interesting to see. I still think Portland is going to, uh, uh, going to come good, but against an LAFC team with all of that excitement, uh, that's cool. And the recognition that they need to turn a corner. So, you know, the rings are out, the celebration is out, but now this is 2023. And Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? As for the Galaxy, they suffered a 3-1 defeat away to Dallas. They actually took the lead through Jovalich and then surrendered an equalizer to Velasco late in the first half. And then Jesus Ferreira scored twice in the second half. No shame in losing away to Dallas, especially with Chicharito out injured. But given the offseason they had, you would have wanted the Galaxy to get off to a good start, especially when you contrast it with LAFC winning their opening game. There's this inevitable comparison we do now between those two franchises. So what did you make of the Galaxy's opening game? I mean, sir, so first off, it was hard, and now we juxtapose, juxtapose LAFC because they had that difficult thing of stop and start, right? Okay, ready to start our season. It's going to be crazy, 90,000 people at the Rose Bowl, and then it just kind of gets pulled out from under you. And you still have to re- readjust mentally and physically to a certain extent. And they adopted and adjusted better than an LA, uh, than an LA Galaxy team, albeit on the road. And like you said, no, uh, no shame in losing to a Dallas team that is – achieved a consistency where they can compete with anybody in the league. Um, 
I, I think the story is much more Jesus Ferreira than the LA Galaxy. And Chicharito is still going to be out for a few weeks, and that is a major problem. Uh, you know, everyone's talked about Jovalich and starting, and well, he finally got his, his, his start up top, which is which is all fine and well. But really, Jesus Ferreira, who we know is uh, was much maligned after the last couple of months being uh, part of the World Cup team and even getting uh, the start and the most important game in uh, in the World Cup and not really providing what a lot of people felt he should. It was nice to see him get back and score goals in different ways and show that he can continue to do that and is going to continue to be a goal scorer going forward. So I don't think it's the end of the world from LA Galaxy, although there were times when you watched that game when what you want to see, even in a loss, is that, oh, this is something different. This is something better than last year. I I got the feeling that LA Galaxy fans were looking in and saying, "Uh uh-oh, here we go again. Uh, five MLS teams now uh, involved in midweek action. I know everybody's excited about the League's Cup later on this year, but don't forget about the CONCACAF Champions League, which gets underway. We have an FS1 doubleheader on Tuesday. You'll be making a rare appearance in the commentator booth alongside Keith Costigan. You two will be working the Violet-Austin FC game, Violet being a Haitian side. And then the other FS1 game, Alianza of El Salvador, will face the Philadelphia Union. The other MLS teams in action, Vancouver taking on Real España, LAFC battling Alajuelense, and then the one MLS Liga MX matchup in this round, Tigres-Orlando, which is fascinating. Tigres widely considered the favorites to win CCL this year. Orlando rested all their starters this past weekend against Cincinnati. Oscar Pareja really wants to perform well in this game. So excited to have CCL back in our lives. Yeah, I can't wait for that. That's going to be fun. And it is this multiple fronts now that we're talking from some of these teams and sometimes teams for the first time. You know, you look at Austin. This is their first foray into the international uh, part of uh, or, uh, of club competition uh, going forward. So that's going to be uh, that's going to be fun to see. And, you know, we're real early in the MLS season. And so, you know, a- attaching value or quality to MLS teams is is kind of difficult because you know some teams have played away some teams they haven't and most teams have, have played two games and we've seen or and you know if you're a team like Toronto for example that is going through already an injury crisis you know that's that can be problematic you know going back to uh, you know because we're not going through every single game when it comes to major league soccer but I will say that the play of you know a team like New England uh, with their first uh, winning uh, both of their first two games. I thought that's really interesting and surprising. It shouldn't be surprising necessarily with Bruce Serena, but they've looked really, really good in their first two games. So I think that's on the good side, as is uh, as is Miami, and they sit at the top of the Eastern Conference. Not necessarily a lot of surprises um, when it comes to the bottom with uh, Charlotte, Montreal, New York City. Uh, they're still going through some changes here. Um, on the other side, Seattle bouncing back. Uh, from last year, and like we already talked about, St. Louis. So a lot of the usual suspects and the expected suspects uh, when it comes uh, it comes to that uh, to that side. But LA still only LA Galaxy still with only one. So this is going to go back and forth, and I think it's a little dangerous to, you know, we we love to hot take it here. We love to uh, you know give our um, our uh, our opinions, but it's still only a couple of game a couple of games in, and this is a league that in and of itself is designed to. Uh, to have parity, and we are going to see a lot of things equal out. And I think a lot of things that we talked about before are going to come into play, including 
the, the uh, operating on multiple fronts like the C CCL types of teams. And those that are able to do it uh, are going to be good. But we only have to look to last year to see that it can really be problematic from an MLS standpoint uh, when you're a team like Seattle that puts all of its eggs into uh, the international basket and then really struggles when it comes to MLS. So if you can do both, uh, more power to you. We don't want to overreact, but should we just give Seattle MLS Cup right now? Yes, just give it to them. You know, I mean, they... Uh, in all their insufferability, uh, have already basically crowned themselves after two games. <laughs> Anything else, Mozzie? That is it. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, a recap from all the craziness over there in Europe. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, welcome back. Uh, let's take a look at Europe, Mossy, because there was all sorts of craziness that went on. We'll begin in England, and we'll get to the title race in a minute, but we felt like we had to start with one of the most stunning scorelines in Premier League history. Historic! Yes, Liverpool 7, Manchester United 0. The biggest blowout in the history of this rivalry and equals the worst loss in Manchester United history. Everybody's talking about this changing of the guard with the Liverpool front three. Mane left in the summer. Firmino just announced he's leaving at the end of the season. And lo and behold, Salah, Nunez, and Gakpo go out and put on an absolute show. They each scored twice. Firmino then came on late and got the seventh. Don't forget, you also have Luis Diaz coming back from injury soon. So kind of a new look Liverpool attack taking shape here. Uh, incredible result for them. I'm going to ask you a fun question in a minute. But first, Give me your thoughts on this incredible result. So, you know, nowadays uh, I do it as well as a lot of people out there where you watch the game and you have the social media going on. And it's almost this companion piece for a lot of people, not everybody, but certainly for me. And so there's this <laughs> there's a situation where you'll, somebody you'll tweet or you'll tweet out something. And by the time the tweet actually populates and gets out there, something has already changed. And there were constantly people that you know, six, seven, five, four, three, you know, going, going, uh, going on when it came to this, uh, this game that by the time you read it, it had already changed in real time because there's the lag between, uh, between the two. And it was, it was incredible. Like we mentioned history, we saw history. Uh, if you're a Manchester United fan, certainly no history that you want to be a part of or associated with. And if you're a Liverpool fan, you, uh, we will absolutely lick it up. I'm, I'm looking forward tomorrow to, uh, uh, to work with my friend uh, Keith Costigan because he's going to be in a very, very good mood uh, when we do our CCL game. This was, it was comprehensive. I do think that, and, and actually in a world in which um, uh, people having an understanding and having nuance uh, is rare to find, I actually think that the reaction to this scoreline and game has almost been actually mature in that I think everybody recognizes that this in no way defines either team relative to where they are this year. It's wonderful to have, and you will celebrate it or you will lament it depending on what side you're on. But when you look at Manchester United, as horrible as they were, and, and, and even during the game, there was a point where it might not have gone this, this credibly lopsided. I think they get the benefit of the doubt of, 
evolving and progressing and moving moving forward, even with this dramatic, it can be said, step back in terms of the way the way that this looks. And for Liverpool, they're not the Liverpool of old, but they did look like that collectively and individually. And what it, whether it was the old guard of Mohamed Salah, by the way, congratulations to him on becoming the record goal scorer for, uh, for Liverpool, uh, kind of just looking like the old Salah, or the new guard with Cody Gakpo, who I'm still not convinced is going to be that number nine up top type of uh, player. And I think they're still going to have to find something else over there. This, this, looked, uh, this looked wonderful. And for Ten Hag, uh, on the other side, this isn't the end of the world. And this is also one of these days that every player, every team, every fan knows is going to happen, where nothing that you do is going right. Is that an excuse? No, because this is still Manchester United. And even though this is not the Manchester United of previous decades, this brand has been sold as being elite. And this brand has been propped up by spending hundreds of millions of dollars on a consistent basis to hedge their bets so that they don't have results like this. Doesn't mean you're assured to win every single game. But so there's two sides of me right now. One wants to be <laughs> mature and recognize that there that this is just one of those days. And the other side wants to wants me wants to maybe from a more emotional standpoint say, no, this is not good. This is not acceptable because of the amount of money that you're paid, the talent that you have, the consistency that you have. You are supposed to have hedged against something like this happening. Yeah, it's a blight on this season. There's no question about it. We'll see how they finish up. And you could still come out of the season feeling very good about the direction they're headed in under Ten Hag. But this is a scoreline. You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago on the podcast about that Germany-Brazil 7-1. And no matter what Brazil does between now and the end of time, that's always going to be a blight on the resume and similar to Manchester United and Ten Hag. Um, on that Liverpool front three, I just want to reiterate what I said a minute ago. Don't forget about Luis Diaz and how great he was. Uh, when he was healthy, he's been injured for a lot of this season, but I wouldn't pencil in these three, Salah, Nunez, Gakpo is definitely the three moving forward because once Diaz gets back, he's going to factor into that equation as well. But it is amazing that Liverpool, for all their problems this season, are still right there as far as top four. In fact, if I was a betting man, I would pick them to finish in the top four, uh, which you know is something if they finish the season playing well, finish in the top four, they could actually come out of this season with a little bit of momentum, which is not something that looked likely to be the case uh, recently. And and look, we know that that Wout Weghorst is a, a he's not great, okay, but he, but he's not horrible. He's going to do a job. He's going to have uh, games where he plays well, where he doesn't. Uh, did you see all the talk about uh, Bruno Fernandes and his antics? Shall shall we say? I. I don't tend to lose sleep over a lot of this stuff because I look at it much more from a, a almost a, a cultural and personal perspective where, especially when it comes to, you know, because I've been listening to a bunch of the pundits over in England, and there's, there's a lot of people out there that are really angry at the way that he behaved as captain and his antics and uh, at times kind of wanting off the field and yelling at different people and, uh, you know, the dark arts and all that kind of stuff. I don't, it doesn't bother me because I assume that that's who he is. I mean, he is a, he's a, he's a beautiful pest and he's not in the traditional sense. And when I say traditional sense of a leader, he's not in the traditional sense of what 
England and the English look for when they have a captain, especially a captain for Manchester United. And so if you are not that, you are always going to suffer. And I'm not saying he, he's, he should continue or that he's the greatest leader. I'm just not as bent out of shape as a lot of people seemingly are after this game. Now, watching the behavior of the Manchester United players as that scoreline got out of hand, it got me thinking, and I was texting with Sean Sullivan uh, this weekend about this. We thought it might be fun to ask you, what's the worst blowout that you've ever been on the wrong end of? What's the most helpless feeling you've ever had on the field during your career? Is there a game that sticks out like that? Uh, I think we led in seven at one point when I was playing for the Kansas City Wizards. Um, And there comes a point where (laughs) nothing you can do or say, all right, you a lot of people equate leadership with volume um, or with animation, right? It, you can scream and yell and F this and F that and you know slap people on the back or do whatever it is that you want to do. And there comes a point in some of these games where it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how motivated you are. It is just not, it is just not happening. The trick is not to let it get to that position. Obviously, beforehand is great, but if you start seeing something happening, you got to cut it off at the pass. But a lot of times, you don't realize it until it's it's too far. It's too far gone. So, look, I I empathize with these players to a cer- to a certain extent, but I also never played for Manchester United, and I also never looked around and said, "Oh my goodness, I have all of the best players uh, around me," and there's you know, we should be considered elite. That's what we are sold as. And we can continue uh, continue on for there. And look, even at, even at the LA Galaxy, we had a lot of good players and there were expectations that had been created over, over the years. But, you know, again, the whole, the whole rah-rah type of individual that a lot of times we, you know, associate leadership with, Sometimes it works, and sometimes people do need a kick in the ass, and sometimes shouting at somebody and increasing your level helps. But it's much more about ultimately what you say than you know the volume in which you say it. What was amazing about this game is Liverpool jumped all over them early, but United withstood the pressure. And then I actually thought they grew into the game and were finishing the half strong. This game was nil-nil in the 43rd minute with United on the front foot. Liverpool scored kind of against the run of play with Gakpo, but you go into the locker room only down 1-0. So there wasn't an opportunity there for a lot of rah-rah shouting because you were still kind of treating it like a normal game. The deluge of Liverpool goals all occurred in the second half, and since there's no timeouts in soccer, there's no moment to kind of get everybody together. Every every basketball coach was going, oh my God, (laughs) call a timeout. Regroup, do all that. I mean, that's the that's the beauty of our game. But Mossy, we do this, and I, I I am guilty too of doing this, where we say, well, you know, there was a period of this game, and you know, they played, you know, it's a tale of two halves and all this kind of stuff. Well, there's a reason why it's 90 minutes, and ultimately, yes, it gives it context. I understand that, but you got to figure out. And if you I'm if just you saying, scored five goals in the last 15 minutes of the game, it doesn't mean that you aren't a better team because just, in, a, in a, another period of game. You were, uh, I'm you were just equal. saying, usually in these crazy blowouts, a lot of the goals were already scored just, in the first half. Right. So it's always interesting, oh, what was the conversation like at halftime? How does the coach handle that? The, the Brazil-Germany World Cup semifinal was 5-0 at the half. So it's kind of an interesting insight to have. What was that Brazil locker room like? In this case, we don't really get that because the locker room at halftime was sort of normal and it only got crazy in the second half. There's the other phenomenon, and I've heard people say this and I've been on the field, where you say, all right, let's just limit the damage. 
as if you know you already are conceding that you got your ass kicked and you are going to lose. You just want to make it look good. That never, I, I never understood that. It was, you, you almost, I always felt that this is the way the game was meant to play out. All right, as painful as it may be when you're on the losing end, to just completely you know, abandon who you are, basically, even the, even the horrible ugliness that you are in that moment, I almost looked like that was adding insult to injury where you said, and I've heard, I've heard people, you know, say it on the field. Like I said, I've heard people say it on the broadcast. Well, you know, what, what should they do now? Well, they should just limit the damage. They should just uh, do everything they possibly can not to let any more goals in. I don't know. That seems to me even, it's just, it, it just rubs me the wrong way to do to do something like that. Uh, last thing on this, then we'll move on. I thought for sure you were going to bring up the 93 Gold Cup final, even though it was only 4-0 to Mexico to Azteca. Given the altitude, bad. the circumstances, that had to be a pretty helpless It was. It was my first time ever playing in Azteca, playing for the national team. And it was this weird, um, I mean, I guess it was prescient because it was a Gold Cup that was happening both in the U.S. and Mexico. And the final was going to be, or and was, uh, going to be uh, in, uh, in Azteca. And so we had blazed through, as often is the case when it comes to the Gold Cup in the U.S., and Mexico had come on the other side. We met in Azteca, 100,000 people, first time in this, uh, in, in the, in this cathedral for me. And from the first whistle, we knew we were outmatched, and we knew it was going to be a very, very long day. And again... I can scream and yell and doing it in front of a hundred thousand people where nobody can hear you anyway is useless, useless to begin with. But at no point did, did we turn around and say, Hey, let's just not let it up any, any more goals. It was, it, 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 I, I think that that's, Oh, I, I would feel dirty doing something like that. But anyway, it was, yeah, that was a bad game. That was a good call actually. Yeah. Ambriz scoring a Roberto Carlos like free oh, kick. Man. I remember that one. I remember, I think I was in the wall in that one yep. and we came nowhere close to touching yep. it. Um, as far as the title race, Manchester City played first on Saturday. They took care of their business, 2-0 home win over Newcastle. Phil Foden with a great solo goal, and then Bernardo Silva off an Erlen Holland assist. So City put some pressure on Arsenal, who were hosting Bournemouth later in the day. Arsenal concede after just nine seconds, the second fastest goal in Premier League history. And, and that's a set piece, by the way. Okay, I mean, we talk about set pieces, and people say, oh, you know, throw, throw-ins are set pieces. A kickoff is a set piece. And if you actually watch the way that set kickoff happened, you know, they turned around. It was, I mean, it almost looked like American football players where they were running to one side. And, and it never works. But in this case, it worked perfectly. And mind you, there were multiple Bournemouth players in the Arsenal half when they kicked off, which is something that normally you don't make a fuss about. But in this case, because they scored a goal, you almost feel like VAR should have looked at that. Um, Bournemouth then score again in the second half. It's 2-0. Arsenal looked to be in trouble. But then Partey 2-1. Ben White 2-2, and Reese Nelson in the seventh minute of stoppage time with the left-footed winner, incredible scenes at the Emirates, the type of victory that makes you wonder if this is a team of destiny. Also the type of victory that kind of calls back, uh, you know, Fergie time and all of that. So the, the, big, the big question uh, right after this game is, is this sustainable? Uh, are they going to go to the well when they now have gone multiple times and find it empty? Or is this actually an attribute of the great teams to, as we just talked about, doesn't matter when you score and there's a certain amount of time that actually is played and the great teams find a way, even when things don't go right for them in the course of a game, to rectify the situation and come back. I, I, I don't know. 
I don't yet know, and I think that's probably what this Arsenal team is trying to prove to themselves and to us, is that, yes, this is a great team, specifically because they can find that moment of magic. And maybe in the past they haven't been able to do so, but since they are such a new, newly minted, great Arsenal team, I think that the jury, the jury is still out. And the ease in which Manchester City kind of gets their results and doesn't necessarily need that makes you think twice. And Arsenal's depth is being tested in the attack. Jesus not back yet, and Ketia missed this game with an injury. Trossard started up front, and he limped off in the first half. They brought on Smith Rowe and moved Martinelli to center forward. Smith Rowe not really up to it physically yet, so he had to come off in the second half. They bring on Reese Nelson, who you could be forgiven for forgetting was even on this team still. And lo and behold, he scores that goal. So they're having to rely on a lot of different guys here. To your point, we'll see if it's sustainable. Uh, can I bring up the Fergie time you just said? Yes. Because I spoke to my father. He was on fire about this. Oh, this was weekend. he? Well, to give the context here, last week there was a Brazil Cup match between Sergipe and Botafogo, played in the lovely city of Aracaju. Oh, I played there. Really? I played. I've been to, it was the first time I ever went to Brazil. We went down as the, uh, the Olympic team and played against the Olympic team from Brazil. The kickoff was 10 p.m. It was hottest place I've ever been. Beautiful place, but I've been there, yes. What was the final score? Uh, we lost. I mean, I don't even know what the score was, but we lost. But it was fun. Uh, CGP was up 1-0. Uh, the referee ended up giving nine minutes of stoppage time in the second half, which CGP thought was way too much. And Botafogo scored an equalizer in the ninth minute of stoppage time. So this being Brazil, when the final whistle blew, the CGP sporting director ran on the field and physically attacked the referee. Jeez. Police had to get involved. A melee ensued. Thankfully, Bournemouth did not react that way at the weekend. But... You know, the referee had signaled for six minutes of stoppage time. Right at the six-minute mark, Arsenal were peppering the Bournemouth box with crosses. And so, you know, there's this unwritten rule that you don't end the game when a team is attacking. Then it goes out for a corner. So then you figure, okay, I have to let them take this corner. They take it. It gets cleared out to Reese Nelson. He scores. And this is all occurring against the backdrop of IFAB and FIFA meeting right now. And Johnny Infantino has identified time-wasting as one of the great issues facing this sport right now. And they're kicking around different ideas to combat it. But one idea that was proposed that Johnny Infantino has dismissed out of hand is stopping the clock. Whenever there's an injury yeah. or, or time wasting, stopping the clock, then starting it again. And that way, games would end at 45 and 90. And I was somewhat disappointed to read about that. I've, I've always been intrigued by that possibility because it would end this ambiguity as to you know when a game is going to draw to a close. It is a bit weird. It's the only sport that has this where we're watching the game and the announcers have to hedge. They say, this is likely their last chance. <laughs> oh no, okay, we're still playing and, and nobody knows exactly when a game's going to end. Other than explaining offsides, that is the one that causes the most uh, confusion and consternation when uh, my non-soccer people ask me uh, about uh, about the time. It's, it's such a foreign type of concept. I would be interested, and I'm sure that there's some smart people out there, if it would actually result in games going longer than what we have right now with what's going on. If you're stopping it every single time the game's, uh, game goes out of bounds. Now, it wouldn't necessarily change the way that the game is played because the game would still flow at whatever pace ultimately uh, ultimately flows, but you would get back some of, uh, some of that time. However, you would also have to end it specifically on the moment and you would get that drama of the, the final 10 second countdown or whatever is happening. And you know, if it went out for that corner, the clock would stop. It could stop on you know, one second, like we see in the NBA or something like that. So that, uh, that, yeah, I think that that would be interesting. But anybody that watched the World Cup, I think is now accustomed and knows that if you do add the time on, 
there are going to be numbers like we have not seen traditionally in the game. And so it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I, I know the consistency is where a lot of people have, have a problem with it. And the World Cup kind of happened throughout the tournament. And it was a mandate and it, and it was implemented. And if you're not doing it like that in a, in a league situation, if one game has it and another game doesn't, I think that's where it's justifiable to be angry. Uh, the other league we'll hit on uh, today is the Bundesliga. Great title race going on there. On Friday, Dortmund claimed a 2-1 home win over Leipzig. They jumped out to a 2-0 lead. Marco Royce from the penalty spot and Emery Chan with a deflected shot. Then Emil Forsberg pulled one back. And Leipzig had some chances late, which if you followed Dortmund the last few years, you had this sense of, I've seen this movie before. They're going to surrender an equalizer. But sure enough, they held up. They held on. Meyer, who was starting in place of Kobel and goal, made some nice saves. And so, much like the Arsenal result, this was the type of win that made me wonder if perhaps this is a different Dortmund team than we've been accustomed to. And what do you what 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 conclusion have you come to? I I still I can't believe it. You know, until it actually happens, I still will not believe it. Uh, our friend Gio did not play again. Correct. Fourth straight game, he was an unused substitute. Okay, we'll but, get to that. But eight straight wins from uh, Dortmund. It's actually uh, ten straight wins in all competitions. Uh, Sean Sullivan sold him short by a couple of wins. Oh, really? Rundown. Eight in 2023. No, is it's what ten he's in saying. 2023. It's, and and <laughs> oh, I'm having in my ears. Hold on, ladies and gentlemen, I'm getting a back and forth between Sean. I know you don't hear our uh, our producer Sean, but he he is adamant that it's uh, that it's exactly as you wrote it. Eight straight wins in all competitions in the start of 2023. But the great David Mossy has come back at him and said, "No, it is absolutely not." So you think it's wrong? You think it's ten straight wins in all competitions to start 2023? Okay, well. It's a pretty easy way for us to find that out. <laughs> oh, Sean is admitting defeat. He has just uh, alerted me that, yes, once again, the great David Mossy wins. Uh, as far as the title race, Union Berlin might be off the case because they were held to a nil-nil yeah, draw by Cologne. Tough. So they're five points back of Dortmund and Bayern. Bayern took care of their business. 2-1 win away to Stuttgart. Uh, Matthias De Litt and Chupa Moting with the goal. Stuttgart pulled one back late, but Bayern held on. So Bayern and Dortmund... Level on points. It looks like it's going to be those two battling for it down to the wire. But you're still adopting a, I'll believe it when I see it as far yeah. as Dortmund. And I, I think that that's fair given what we've seen over the last decade. And these are England and Germany. These are the two title races we have right now. Uh, Napoli, despite losing to Lazio this past weekend, 15 points clear. Yeah. Barcelona now nine points clear in Spain after they won in Real Madrid drew this weekend. And PSG eight points clear in France. So you agree in terms of title races, it's really England and Germany right now. Yep, right? that's it. That's it. The uh, round of 16 of the Champions League resumes Ooh. this week. On Tuesday, Chelsea will play host to Dortmund, looking to overturn a 1-0 aggregate deficit. Uh, Dortmund claimed that 1-0 victory thanks to a great goal by Karim Adeyemi in the first leg at the Westfalen Stadion. Uh, big news on the American front. Um, Christian Pulisic, we thought might come back this past weekend against Leeds. He wasn't even on the bench, but Graham Potter has confirmed he will be in the squad for this one. Joe Reyna will be in the squad for Dortmund. Although, as we just discussed, he's been an unused substitute the last four games. And, and even Pulisic coming back from injury after so long, would Graham Potter throw him into a game like this? I don't know. So we'll see. There's an alternate universe where if the last couple of years had gone differently for these two guys in terms of fitness and form, that this game could be an incredible showcase for U.S. soccer with them both playing starring roles for their respective clubs. Instead, we're sitting here not really sure if either of them is even going to see the field. So what are your overall thoughts about that? I mean... Look, I think we mentioned this on a previous pod that maybe we have unrealistic expectations when it comes to some of these players, uh, what we want them to do, kicking on from the World Cup. And that's that's okay. I think any 
fan base, and I include myself in that, would have those types of expectations. And so when it doesn't come to fruition, it's disappointing and we're looking for, for reasons. Any player is going to go through ups and downs. I remember when I first started my career, I had watched John Harks play in the World Cup and I finally met him for the first time when I got called into the national team. And I remember the first conversation I ever had with him, he said, your career is not going to be in a straight line. <laughs> up, 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 up. It's going to go up and down and up and down. And he said, and if during that career, however long it lasts, you can look and you say you had more ups than downs, consider that a success because it puts you in a very small uh, pack and, uh, and a minority when it, uh, when it comes to a career. So yes, we want this to happen and we want to happen now. And it doesn't mean it won't happen in the future. Uh, speaking of the, uh, the here and now, uh, when it comes to uh, Americans playing. With Christian Pulisic back, I love the fact that he is part of the plans. Um, and Potter needs some plans because I still think, notwithstanding that they they won 1-0 on the weekend, and it's almost like <laughs> it's such a huge relief for Chelsea just to win, albeit against a team that Chelsea should win and should win comfortably. And it wasn't comfortable against uh, against Leeds. And from a staying up perspective, it's not a great thing. but in normal times, you shouldn't expect Leeds to get anything out of a game against uh, Chelsea. And in normal times, you shouldn't expect Chelsea to have any problem finishing off a team like Leeds. And yet, both of those things uh, say more about the fact that we are not in uh, in normal times. When I look at this matchup, ultimately, uh, with Chelsea uh, Chelsea and Dortmund, uh, I would, I'd be surprised if we see Christian, but I would, I would love to see that. And that he's talking about it is a, is a good thing. I would be really surprised if Gio, if Gio plays, uh, plays a role. As far as who is coming into this better off, if you take the Gio part of the conversation, which is kind of where we come from, take that out. And most people that, that uh, look at Dortmund around the world, they're not talking about Gio Reyna. Dortmund's flying. They should be, even though it's just one, one goal, they should be really excited and um, positive about the opportunity to go in and face a not even close to great Chelsea team. It's funny, although we all treat it as a given that Pulisic is going to leave Chelsea at the end of the season, in our last pod, we even ranked the potential uh, transfer destinations. I saw Tom Bogert did something similar as well. There is a chance here for him to change this narrative. They've been so bad without him, struggled so much yep. offensively. If he gets on the field, scores a couple goals, provide some sort of spark, they might rethink, wait a minute, why are we getting rid of this guy versus all these other guys who aren't performing? I don't know. I mean, maybe no, I shouldn't I mean, close that door. in a lot of walks in life. And sometimes it's hard in the moment for the people that are involved to realize that sometimes you are more valuable by not being a part of something. <laughs> and sometimes you benefit more from not being a part of something than being a part of something. And again, this has not been a good Chelsea team. But this has not been a good Chelsea team, at least in the, in the short term, without Christian Pulisic. And so it's not that he's the savior or anything, but maybe to your point, he comes in and timing's everything in life, including soccer. And if he comes in and is associated with a reemergence and an improvement of the Chelsea team, who knows? Maybe he'll become best friends with Mr. Potter going forward. Another big Champions League game we have our eyes on. Bayern Munich will host PSG. Bayern won the first leg at the Parc de Princes thanks to a second-half goal by Kingsley Coman, so they will bring a 1-0 aggregate advantage into this return leg. Neymar out for this one, and it was reported today he's actually going to miss the rest of the season. He's going to have surgery on his ankle. He's going to be out three or four months. 
So two-part conversation here. As far as this specific game, I'll reiterate a point I've made a couple of times recently. I actually think, I hate to say this, I love Neymar. I've spent an inordinate amount of time in the last 10 years defending the guy. But I actually think his absence might be a blessing in this game because I do not think starting all three of those guys would be a recipe for success in a game away to Bayern. They're only down a goal. Messi and Mbappe provide you more than enough firepower. You need to be balanced. You need to be solid in a game like this. And playing the formation they played away to Marseille recently, a game they won 3-0, which was their best performance of 2023, I think that's the, the way to go here. I suspect it's going to be a 3-5-2 with Kimpembe out. Danilo's become that third guy at the back alongside Marquinhos and Sergio Ramos. And then you're going to see two wingbacks and Verratti, Vicina, and Fabian Ruiz in the midfield and then Messi and Mbappe up top. Might not work. I mean, chances are Bayern are going to go through regardless. They're the better team. They're at home. They have the advantage. But I think PSG have more of a chance playing this lineup than they would have playing those three guys up top. What do you think? Is this, in terms of your uh, your view right now on... Um addition by subtraction relative to Neymar. Is this something new? And if so, what has changed? Because well, we know just in general, you put a bunch of stars together, it doesn't mean it's going to click. And sometimes you need time and sometimes it's just never going to click. So I just want to understand the history, uh, if this has evolved for you in that, was there a point that it clicked and why did it click? Or is it just never really clicked in the way that it, uh, that it has? And how much of it is simply on Neymar relative to the other two? I think the injuries have changed him as a player. He doesn't have the same burst. He's not as dynamic. He's not a sort of run-behind defense player. He's more of a playmaker now. So there is a certain redundancy in having him and Messi uh, in the lineup together. And, you know, with those three guys up top, it, it kind of disrupts your ability to press when you don't have the ball and, and it, it upsets the balance against most opponents they face, certainly the riffraff in France and even teams they face in the group stage of the Champions League. I think they can just play that lineup and out talent teams, but a way to Bayern, I think you have, like I said, you have to be really solid. And so that would be my concern. Whatever blame, and that's maybe a harsh word because this is one of the elite teams and they, they win a lot of games and do some incredible things, but whatever blame you're putting squarely on the shoulders of Neymar. And it's not blame, I mean, injuries, it's, it's again, it's a harsh word to use, but you're putting it squarely on his shoulders as opposed to anybody else. You're blaming Neymar for if and when they don't play well with all three of them on the field against quality competition. Yes. Um, but I actually think his long-term injury is bad news for PSG in terms of their efforts to unload him in the summer, oh, which is something I think yeah. they'd like to do but again, you just wonder if any other big European club is going to step up and pay a lot of money for a guy who's been so injury prone the last few years. The numbers, they make for some ugly reading. He's in six seasons with PSG and his sixth season is now over. He, he's made 173 appearances. He made 186 in four seasons at Barcelona. So more games in four seasons at Barcelona than in six seasons at PSG. If you average it out, 173 games over six seasons, that's less than 30 per season. It's just been one injury after another. It's so frustrating for those of us that are fans of his who love watching him. And I know Chelsea, Todd Bowley, I wouldn't put anything past him, but, but I, I'll ask you, if you were a big European club, he's now in his 30s. He's had this terrible injury record the last few years. Um, is there anything that would compel you to spend big money on Neymar at this point? Yeah, I still think he's a game changer. Uh, and I still think for those luxury teams that are able to spend money, I think he is going to be attractive. But it does highlight, and not that he needs highlighting anymore, because people say, well, you know, the type of position he plays and he takes players on one-on-one -on -one and he's constantly, you know, dribbling and people are trying to 
crush him and <laughs> and uh, and tackle him. That this is kind of this comes with the territory. And then, and then you go look at Messi, who does as much, if not more, of that little dribbling and putting himself in different situations. And plenty of people who take swings at uh, at Messi, and he is built differently physically um, than uh, than Neymar, but his body and maybe even his mind are much more adept to dealing with that physical type of stuff that goes on uh, than Neymar is. So, I mean, if, if, Messi, if Messi needed yet another reason to call him great, there it is. Incidentally, Mbappe scored at the weekend against Nantes, and he surpassed Edison Cavani. He's now PSG's all-time leading scorer. We'll see if he can add to his total against Bayern Munich. Uh, Tottenham will host AC Milan. Uh, AC Milan with a 1-0 aggregate advantage. Uh, Brahim Diaz scored the only one at the San Siro in the first leg. Tottenham coming off a pair of defeats to Sheffield United in the FA Cup and then to Wolves in the Premier League. Uh, AC Milan did lose to Fiorentina at the weekend as well. How do you see this one? What's your gut feeling here? I, I think Spurs are a team that doesn't know going forward if they're going to look the same on or off the field. I, I don't know. If they continue on with Conte, I don't think, he, or, or even he wants to do it. So I think that this is, it's not a lame duck type of Spurs team here, but they don't impress me. Now, Milan isn't great, but, you know, we talked last week about them. Uh, what would you say the, uh, uh, the, the result was? Um, they, they, uh, they lost. They lost to Fiorentina, you know, which isn't a great result. But, I mean, I'll still give, I'll, uh, Spurs... They, they have a game changer in Kane, but I'm still going to give Milan the slight advantage here. So, yeah, I, I think that Dortmund go to Chelsea and get the result that they need, and I think Milan go uh, and get the result in the game against Spurs. And if that happens, and Liverpool are down 5-2 on aggregate to Real Madrid going back to Spain, despite their fireworks this past weekend against United, you still think Liverpool probably go out in that tie, correct? Yes. So if... Chelsea and Tottenham go out here. Liverpool go out next week. Manchester City are 1-1 against Leipzig. I assume you think they'll go through in that. But uh, that's an interesting overarching theme here. The Premier League, all the spending in January, and everybody talking about how the gap between them and everybody else is so large. And then the Champions League results so far haven't really backed that up. So that's it's kind of interesting, something to keep an eye on. I mean, it's gonna, look, this is close. Yeah. I mean, and, and as we right. said, this is still an incredibly talented Chelsea team and an incredibly talented Spurs team that can find it on the day. And sometimes... When it's not going well on one front, you translate it and you put all of your energy in and find, you know, renewed hope on the other front. Uh, incidentally, Benfica returned home with a 2-0 aggregate lead over Club Bruges. We both think that tie is done and dusted, yep. so Benfica yep. will move on to so the what's quarterfinal. So who do you have winning in these games then? Uh, I think... Dortmund hang on? Dortmund... Or, or Chelsea turn it around? Dortmund, Bayern, and Tottenham. Okay. So the only thing we differ is... I don't feel Milan. great about it, to no, be honest. No, no. I think they could all go either exactly. way. Exactly. But uh, the only thing we differ then is the uh, I think Milan's going to find a way. Okay. Anything else? Uh, that's it. All right. Let's take another quick break. When we come back, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. 
Okay, welcome back, and it's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where you uh, send in your questions, and you can use that hashtag Ask Alexi and send them in all the uh, social media platforms out there. And if you do, like I said, use that hashtag, but also uh, recognize that uh, our handles out there are SOTU with Alexi on the Twitters and the Instagrams and all the stuff out there. Or you can call in to our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297, 657-549-2297. What do we have today, Mossy? We have a couple of voicemails. Let's hear the first one right now. This is Troy, and I'm calling you from Denver. Um, had a previous request about this, but uh, you got to have Carly F. and Lloyd on your show <laughs> uh, as soon as she can talk about her special ops experience on the TV show. So she was always a, a beast physically and mentally on the field, and she even shows even more so in this. So I'm sure you two talked about it during your time in uh, France last week, but... Uh, Love to at least hear you acknowledge that she will be on at some point soon. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Um, all right. So listen, the great Carly Lloyd. And, uh, you know, as he mentioned, by the way, thanks for the, uh, the call there, uh, Troy from Denver. Um, yes, she will be on the show again. And certainly as we lead up to this uh, summer and the uh, and the women's world cup and she's always welcome and she always brings it uh every single time uh that she uh that she comes on the show uh, you know off the show and having spent now a lot of time with her whether it was you know our time uh you know working um or having fun as we mentioned in paris and uh, in colorado over the weekend just one of the nicest people you will ever meet and what's really interesting to see as carly has um gotten away from the actual playing of the game, which she would be the first to admit has often defined who she is, is to see her make this transition. And it's not an easy one. It's not an easy one for anyone uh, that has played, and especially someone that has been elite, best player in the world, and is used to competing and winning on a consistent basis. It's not easy to have that thing that defines you taken away. Um, you know, he mentioned the, uh, the show Special Forces, and um, she was awesome in it and made it all the way to the end. And there were plenty of people that didn't make it to the end. And so, again, she saw the competition with that. And that's really what I think she is going about doing right now. And I think being very successful at doing it, um, which is, again, not assured for many ex-player, is that she is finding things that excite her, finding things that she is curious about find, trying things and bringing that competition and that personality that she has and that character of wanting to win and harnessing it. And, you know, it's going to go sometimes the way she the way it play it planned and sometimes not the way that, uh, that she planned. But I even saw it when we were working with her because, you know, life is a competition or a series of competitions. And, you know, when we are working, Yes, we are a team, and yes, we are a family, but our own individual performance, it, it is a competition to bring it and to put your best foot forward. And there are plenty of others that would love to take your spot. And if you drop, even for a second, your guard, because of that competition, you will find yourself being replaced very, very quickly. And I think she has been able to very quickly suss out and recognize the competitive nature of jobs or opportunities or experiences out there that have nothing to do necessarily with kicking a ball, but she can still access all of those different things that made her one of the greats. And 
again, it's not easy to harness it, but I think she is uh, doing a good job of that. So I, I love her. I love Carly Lloyd. And it's not just because of the fact we both went to Rutgers, uh, not just the fact that we both played, uh, played soccer. Um, she is in another world when it comes to the impact that she has made. And if you're ever around Carly Lloyd, you will see that impact on a continual basis. And whether it's kids coming up to her or adults coming up to her and thanking her and wanting to talk about how she changed the way they think about themselves, the way that they think about the game um, through her actions out there. And sometimes you're in that bubble and you don't recognize it. And it's wonderful, I think, for her to see. And it's not just all about stroking ego. We were all successful because of big egos. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You have to use it correctly and you have to harness it, uh, like I said. And I think she did that a long time ago. But this process that she's going through and this next part of her life, I think are going to be as interesting from for those of us on the outside, but internally for her, I think that they are going to be as, if not in some senses, even more rewarding uh, than anything that she uh, did on the soccer field. Because while it might be an important part of our life, it's still a very small part of our life. And while it might at times come to still define us, uh, you have to be able to find other things. And I think the great Carly Lloyd is in the process of doing that. And I think she's well on her way to finding those things after kicking a ball that are going to excite her as much and maybe even more. So, Troy, that's a long way of saying that, believe me, we will be, uh, we will be talking to, uh, to Carly. And when it comes to the actual um, show, that Special Forces show, she was not allowed to tell us because it was secret, because it went week after week, how well she was doing, but I could see in her eye. And my wife immediately said, oh yeah, she's definitely going all the way, uh, all the way through. And she, uh, she knew it. And so we had a really good time. And I can also tell you that both she and her husband are incredible skiers. So she's just not just a great soccer player. She is just a great athlete and would probably be good at any sport that, uh, that she picked up. And she was bombing down the mountain. And I will leave you with this, this image. Uh, so I, as I said, we were out in Colorado uh, skiing. And while I came home yesterday, she continued on and she probably is skiing right now as we speak. But she did text me a picture yesterday um, of her and her husband uh, and they had taken a wrong path, Mossy, <laughs> and not seen the sign that said there is no uh, lift or gondola access. And so they skied down this lonely, beautiful path. Uh, uh, empty path and got to the bottom and realized that the only way back up was by foot. And so they had to trudge all the way back up the mountain. And I'm sure that Carly uh, approached that and attacked that mountain with the same vim and vigor and gusto uh, and competition that she attacks everything in life. So I hope she's having a good time skiing, but we will see her many, many times, including this summer when it comes to the World Cup. Um, anything else, Mossy? Uh, we have another voicemail. Let's listen to that one. Hi, Leslie. My name is Declan. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm eight years old. I have a question for you. What was your most favorite moment of your whole soccer career? Also, could I could I have some tips on what would be some good good things for a young kid who's first starting soccer? Thanks. Bye. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, thank you, Declan. Eight years old from Atlanta uh, calling in. That would put him, you know, born sometime around the uh, 2015 uh, point, Mossy. 
okay, so my favorite moment, Declan. Well, whether you realize it or not, the reason why you are calling into the State of the Union on our State of the Union podcast hotline is because of what happened many, 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 many years ago, decades, decades before you were even a uh, twinkle in anybody's eye, and certainly before you were born back then in uh, 2015-ish. And that would have been the 1994 World Cup. And I've said it before, uh, but I will say it again to you, Declan, and anybody that, that, that is listening. Yeah, it, it completely changed my life forever and for the better. And I, I live the power of what a World Cup can to do to an individual. And from a personal perspective, it was incredible, like I said, and changed me forever. But I also, even in the moment, could recognize that it was, and I was a small part, but I was a part of changing the way that my country that I love looks at the game of soccer. And we continued on into the 1999 World Cup with the, uh, the women and obviously the establishment of Major League Soccer and more World Cups to follow and more stars uh, and, uh, you know, the infrastructure and the stadiums. We started this pod talking off about what's happening in St. Louis. All of that kind of stuff went into play. And so that's why I think my favorite moment, if you will, was that moment in that summer when I looked around and I was incredibly proud and almost at ease with the fact that this is going to head in the right direction. And, you know, take twists and turns, but this was heading in the right direction. And so forever, the 1994 uh, World Cup will be very, very special to me and would be, I guess, my favorite moment. And if you want a specific moment from then, beating Columbia in, that, in the Rose Bowl in front of 100,000 people, Columbia, a team that a lot of people had picked to win the World Cup, which ultimately advanced us out of the group and achieved that, uh, that goal, which was very, very important, that would be the moment. And when that final whistle blew and you know, holding up American flags and having that American moment through the game of soccer that I love, yeah, that was, uh, that was pretty special. Uh, when it comes to tips, because people ask me all the time, you're still uh, relatively young. I know that there's specialization. I hope that your parents um, uh, are having you play multiple sports. I would encourage that as much as I love soccer, Declan, I hope that you are trying out not just multiple sports, but multiple things. And whether it's, you know, being in theater or whether it's being in music uh, or whether it's playing, you know, chess or cards or all the other stuff, including uh, your schoolwork and all that kind of stuff. The more things that you try, I think the better off you are. And while you might love soccer, Declan, and you'll play, I'm sure, plenty of soccer, and who knows where you go when it comes to the game, I think you will be a better soccer player from trying and playing different sports. It doesn't mean that you'll play them all your life. It doesn't even necessarily mean that you will like them or that you will necessarily even be good at them. But I think you're cheating yourself as a young person and as a young athlete if you don't at least try some other things. And as I said before, I know that I was ultimately a better soccer player for having played other sports. And I know that that is almost a, a time gone by and there are people that might disagree, but I just know how my body worked and how my mind worked and I'm glad that I was able to do it, especially when you're eight years old and a young age. If you want specific soccer tips, be with the ball as much as you possibly can. Everyone talks about first touch. Well, the only way you get a first touch is understanding how 
a sphere like a ball actually works and how spin works and how roll works and how bounce works and how touch works and how give works and all those different things. So the more that you can be with that ball, the better off you will be ultimately in terms of controlling it. And ultimately, soccer is about control whether it's control of yourself or control of the ball or control of the time or control ultimately of the game. It's about control. Mossy, anything uh, to add? Anything uh, you would uh, advise young Declan? So if Declan demonstrated an incredible ability in a certain sport, potentially being able to go professional in that sport, you still would not recommend the Richard Williams, Earl Woods, Marinovich approach just You'll, look, you'll still get your 10,000 hours, okay? Uh, and you will still, if you are that good, you will, you will find a way to, to, to be great. And, you know, we only, again, I think we talked about this last pod, we only hear about the success stories. And there are plenty of them, okay? But if you just look at the actual numbers, you're not necessarily hedging your bet by, by doing that. And especially at a young age. And I'm not talking, like I said, you might find out that you really don't like all those other sports. That's okay. But what does it hurt to try? How many hours are you going to take away from your kid learning soccer by actually putting them into a, a, another sport? And maybe that sounds grumpy old man. Maybe that sounds antiquated to, uh, you know, to, to parents out there. But, and also, Declan, I don't care if you go on and are a good soccer player. I really don't. All right? I hope that you find joy in the game. I care that you go on and that you are a productive human being. And in this case, a productive American that is going to lead our country, not on the soccer field, off the soccer field. I hope you use sports, including soccer, to become that productive and successful young man going forward. But that, to me, ultimately is success, Declan. All right. Using soccer to be a better person, using soccer to be that young American that is going to go on and lead the country that I love, hopefully in a good and positive direction. That's what I care about. Fair enough. That's it. All right. Thank you both to Troy and Declan uh, for reaching out on our State of the Union podcast hotline. Again, that's 657-549-2297. And you know what? You can be old. You can be young. It doesn't matter. The uh, State of the Union podcast hotline is open to all. That call makes me wonder what the average age of our listenership is i don't know we could probably find out that you're, you're an analytics dude you go figure it out all right let's take a quick break when we come back i'll give you my one for the road okay welcome back it is the end of our show and at the end of each and every one of our shows i give you my one for the road uh mossy there's a lot of talk nowadays uh with the success of uh drive to survive and the uh, the tennis stuff and the uh, uh, PGA stuff these these documentaries that are being used to uh create interest and to bring more people into whatever tent it may be whether it's your tennis tent or you know whatever league or sport that you want to you know, reach out to people that maybe otherwise wouldn't be interested in your sport. And they are used uh, for the drama and the intrigue and the curiosity that comes at the, uh, the auto racing one. I know my, my kids were totally into it. And therefore, when the races came on, they were more apt to actually turn it on and stick with it going forward. And there's a lot of talk about whether MLS 
can do something similar. Well, we come to find out that they have actually teamed up uh, with uh, a company called Box to Box that has done these things. Now, I know you're a connoisseur when it comes to documentaries uh, about teams and the inside and the back of stage and behind the curtain type of looks. So give, give our listeners, if they, if they don't know, some of the history about how this has gone. Yeah, specifically, this company has worked on this Drive to Survive, as you mentioned, which is a Formula One um, documentary type show, which has chronicled the last several seasons. I'm a junkie. I've never missed an episode. And I'm somebody who was a Formula One fan growing up, but then had completely drifted out of the sport. And now, thanks to this documentary, I'm now into it again. Uh, the season kicked off this past weekend. I was all over it. Big weekend for Red Bull, finished one and two. Fernando Alonso finished third. So, you know, th this is now on my radar where it otherwise wouldn't have been. And yeah, it just, it, it chronicles the season. Uh, you hear from different drivers and, and team owners and, you know, the storytelling is great. They set it up. You have your rivalries, your controversies, your heroes, your villains, et cetera. And yeah, both tennis and golf, as you mentioned, have tried to replicate it. The tennis one called Breakpoint, the golf one, which I really loved called Full Swing. And yeah, it sort of hinges on getting the, best players to buy in and chronicling players that have interesting personalities. And I absolutely think this can work with MLS if it's done properly. So I'm very excited to hear this news. So when I think about behind the scenes, reality shows, basically what they are, documentaries, um, first off, they have to, and when I say they, I mean, in this case, because we're talking about the possibility of MLS doing something, I think MLS has to decide what do they want out of it? Because MLS as a league has a tent. But there are also tents within the MLS tent that the clubs inhabit. And each and every club is, while they play in MLS, they are unique. We started the show talking about St. Louis. And what might be good for St. Louis might be different for uh, another team. Ultimately, as you said, you have to get buy-in. And you have to get buy-in from, let's be honest, from what are going to be the characters that are going to be part of this reality show. And that's not always easy because one, there are some that just see that's not something that I am comfortable doing, whether it's players or whether it's coaches or whether it's staff or anybody else out there. There's others that say, yeah, I'm really comfortable at doing it, but in this day and age where individuals uh, care and develop their own individual brands, they might say, hey, for my brand, I would rather have me doing something that's going to benefit me individually. And that's, that's completely fair going forward. Uh, and especially in this day and age where players think about, uh, think about these things. I do think things can be done. And there is manipulation that goes on behind the scenes. And ultimately, this is a packaged form of entertainment. And while we call it reality, it's, it's not necessarily real. And so I hope that whether it's done on a big tent type of version where it's just about MLS, or more importantly, where I think it's done in a smaller type of version where it's specifically about your team, I think that could be interesting because when I think about MLS fans, I think that there is starting to be this, I guess, tribalization, if that's even a word. And they are starting to care more about their individual team than MLS as a whole. They will defend MLS because their team is part of MLS, but they are going to want more and more specific content and, pro and, and programming relative to their team that they feel a connection to. And all of those people that were out in St. Louis and those young 
people that are very, very attractive uh, from a, a customer and consumer standpoint and a marketing standpoint, they are going to want the entertainment and drama surrounding their individual team. And I'm not saying there can't be a national type of interest when it comes to what's happening in MLS, but you know, there's close to 30 teams and trying to find the drama that helps everybody and all ships rise, I think that that could be kind of difficult. Having said that, I think it is certainly worth a try. And ultimately, like I said, it's going to come down to the characters and the people working behind the scenes. We know it's all in the edits and your ability to make it interesting, to make it provocative, um, to make it even times controversial where people are invested and not just normal people. And this goes back to something that we've talked about before where MLS's problem is not that there aren't soccer fans in the U.S. or Canada. It's that there's not enough MLS fans. And so how do you make people that are, just start with the people that are already soccer fans. How do you make them become MLS fans? And maybe it's by showing behind the scenes and having them care and become invested in something because they see more than just the actual kicking of the ball. And maybe you don't, maybe they don't care. And maybe some of these things like Drives to Survive found lightning in the bottle. And can you replicate it? Maybe, maybe not. But not all leagues, not all sports are created equally. And so just because it worked someplace else doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work in MLS. But it is absolutely worth a try. And if you're going to do it, go to somebody who is experienced in doing it and knows at least what works from a television perspective. But what works for... Uh, auto racing might be very different than what works for tennis and might be very different than what works uh, for, for soccer. And there's plenty of soccer documentaries and behind the scenes that we have seen over the years too. Some of them compelling, some not so uh, compelling. And again, it comes down to the characters that are involved or not involved. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right. We come to the end of yet another show. Uh, our first one of the week. We'll be back later on this week to talk about all the games that have happened and the games to come and plenty of the stories uh, that are out there. As I mentioned in the, in the previous show, we continue to be a work in progress. Uh, we love your uh, your feedback and we love the information, whether it's questions on the State of the Union podcast hotline, 657-549-2297, or just you know, sending us uh, tweets or whatever. If there's stuff that you want to see, we can't be everything to everybody, but if there's stuff that you like, stuff that you don't like, uh, feel free to reach out and, uh, and let us know because we are nothing if not flexible when it comes to uh, what we are doing. But I do think that we've found our groove and that's uh, thanks to the incredible people, whether it's Mossy or the people, wonderful people that are working behind the scenes to make this show now twice a week. And I think it's pretty, pretty good. All right. We will see you again uh, later and hear your, uh, you will hear from us again later on this week on the State of the Union podcast hotline. Uh, you can uh, send your uh, messages 657-549-2297. And uh, until then, and as always, my friends, this has been the State of the Union. And remember, size the day.